Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right. Trust you're all enjoying the summer. It's been great to see people having... Just a good time getting away, getting out, doing things as family and friends and visiting. We have a, a, a number of faces here today, people that I don't uh, recognize or haven't had the opportunity to meet, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, and the Lord has brought us all together to this place today to worship him, and I hope that you've enjoyed just the, the thoughts that we've been able to express to the Lord in song and prayer already, because it sure has been a blessing to be here. Uh, this is the time we set apart a each Sunday uh, to get into the Word together, and so we want to, uh, to do that. We're, um, we're on a three-year journey through the Bible, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, over the course of three years, starting this last September in the book of Genesis and traveling through, uh, and today we're in First Samuel, or uh, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 9. And I don't know how many of you have uh, scars on your, your bodies. Uh, I have a few. I have uh, this one here that was a result of a beaver dam up at Isaac Lake. Um, I have one here that was, I got when I was, uh, my dad built us a playhouse when I was a kid, and, and, and the uh, locking system was a nail that basically when you shut the door, the nail would drive in the, it was, it was, yeah, it wasn't finished yet and still in construction when I got that scar. And then I have this scar here from a piece of sheet metal. And uh, everything, all, everything seems to happen to the left side of my body. I don't know why that is. But anyways, maybe you have scars or marks. Uh, or maybe you have things on your, uh, your, uh, in, your, in your past that haven't just uh, scarred you physically. But what about the scars that we don't see or we can't see? Maybe you have some of those. And perhaps you maybe even have had events in your past that have more than just marked you, but they have to some degree defined your life. Today we're, we're thinking and, and, and uh, talking about someone who had an incident when they were five years old that clearly defined their lives. His name uh, is Mephibosheth. And not only does he have a funny name, but something happened when he was five years old that left him permanently disabled. It was a life-altering occurrence. And um, we're going to be considering his, his uh, story today. So I invite you to pray with me before uh, you turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel. Father, I just thank you for all that we've been able to enjoy here today and just for the privilege that's been identified already of just being able to gather as, as family. We gather in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, we gather to give you glory, Lord, and we gather to seek your face and we invite you to speak to our hearts, Lord, and to communicate to us through your word. We thank you for this portion of your word today. and. And for all that it has for us, that you want to communicate with us, help us, Lord. Help us by your spirit to, to hear what you want for us to, to have and to take away today. We thank you for each one here, and we thank you most of all, Lord, for your presence here in this place. And for your amazing love and grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 4 actually introduces us to Mephibosheth. Uh, where there's a brief comment there, 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So that's immediate background, okay? Uh, that's the immediate background uh, to 2 Samuel 9. Uh, and 
here is uh, what we could call maybe the setting of Second uh, Samuel 9. And that's Second uh, Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. It says, David reigned over all Israel. This is the historical note. This is the point we've come to in the narrative. David is now reigning. Saul is, is, uh, is dead. Uh, Jonathan is dead. Um, uh, Ishbosheth, the remaining, the only son remaining alive of Saul, is dead. And David is on the throne of Israel. He's ruling over all Israel. It says, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's a, intended as a, a general statement. Uh, any thought that we might entertain that David is some kind of model person who doesn't, uh, isn't really messed up uh, will be exploded next week when we consider the account of David and Bathsheba. So it's not intended here as a statement to define David's character. Rather, it is a general statement uh, of how a king should, uh, should behave it says he administered justice and equity to all his people. And, and that's, uh, those are big things. Justice and equity, or, or equality, if you will, are, um, are really uh, a big deal. Um, and so the writer wants us to, to, um, to recognize these things as we come into chapter 9. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? You know, the house of Saul had been decimated. And it's important to know that none of those people died at David's hand or at his command. Uh, we learned a few weeks ago that David, on many occasions, spared Saul's life, even though Saul was trying to kill him and had numerous times attempted to kill him. David spared his life. And we also know that David and Jonathan were the best of friends, the very best of friends. And, uh, but we also know that Saul was a stubborn and disobedient and, and, and a man who lacked faith in the Lord and obedience to the Lord. And uh, not only did he suffer for it, but all his family suffered as well. And uh, so David says in, in, ch in chapter 9, verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And this is how the story of Mephibosheth really gets underway here. But in order to really appreciate what David means when he says that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, we need to go back again, back, back past the incident that took place when Mephibosheth was um, five, back past his birth, uh, back to the life of his father and grandfather, if we're really going to understand the relationship between David and Jonathan that really forms the dominant uh, features of Mephibosheth's stories, be, story. Because the, when, uh, when David says here uh, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, that is a very key statement. This is a story that's all about what we could call the things that David does for jo Jonathan's sake. So these are determining factors that uh, occurred before Mephibosheth was even born. We don't like to think about our lives being determined. We like to think about how we are agents of free will. We like to think um, that we are the captains of our own soul and the, the uh, in charge of our own destinies and fate. But I think it's important for us to recognize here that the determining factors in Mephibosheth's life flow out of events that preceded his life. The people he was related to. It says, if we go back, in 1 Samuel 18, 
It says, verses 1 through 4, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Another key statement. And Saul took him that day, that's David, and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Mark those words. If you're not going to mark them in your Bible, mark them in your mind. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself, verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There's immense symbolism in that act as we see Jonathan relinquishing his title, entitlement to the throne, and recognizing that it really belonged to David. That would be an unheard of thing. And it was unheard of then. It's probably still pretty rare to see somebody uh, do something like that. And then slipping ahead a couple chapters of 1 Samuel 20. Again, trying to get a sense for this relationship between uh, Jonathan and David. Chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, verses 14 and 15 says, If I am still alive, this is Jonathan speaking, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Looking into the future, okay, he says, And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan is seeing by faith and recognizing by faith and submitting by faith to the realities of David's anointing of God to be king over Israel, uh, much to his father's chagrin. There's a play on words here, I I believe, because when he talks about um, uh, making uh, David promise uh, not to cut off um, from uh, his house the steadfast love uh, forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Because in the Old, in the Old Testament, the idea of covenants um, were obviously important, but there was a ceremonial aspect to covenant making in the Old Testament uh, Jewish culture going all the way back at least as far as Abraham and if you look and you, you don't need to uh, to turn there now but in uh, Genesis chapter 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham there uh, it demonstrates that that ceremonial aspect where they would take an animal of some kind and they would uh, slay the animal and they would dismember the animal, cut it up into pieces, if you will, and then they would make a path between the pieces and the parties of the covenant would pass through and and it was a symbolic way of saying that uh, this is what will happen to us if we do not fulfill the promise of this covenant. And it's really interesting in the Genesis 15 account because it's actually it appears that it's God that passes through the pieces. It was God that made the covenant with Abraham. And so the Hebrews didn't just talk about making a covenant. They talked about cutting a covenant. And so here there's probably a play on words when Jonathan says, uh, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And then in verse uh, 16 and 17 it says, And Jonathan made a covenant. This is 1 Samuel 20, 16, 17. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by uh, his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So there's key words here. 
The word covenant is key. The word love is key. Um, and this is all uh, during that scene where they're out in the field shooting arrows, and David's hiding out because he knows Saul, Jonathan's father, is out to try to kill him, and, and Jonathan's not so convinced that that's the case, and so he says, I'll check it out, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a signal. You know, we'll shoot the arrows. If I shoot the arrows over here, and they, they worked it out. You, you, hopefully you read through that uh, a few weeks back. Now, it's estimated that 15 to 20 years have passed since David made that promise to Jonathan. Question. Do you think the passage of time should have an impact on the promise that David and Jonathan made? Saul is now dead. David is now king. All the circumstances have changed. You think the changes of circumstance should make a difference in this promise that David and Jonathan made to one another. Jonathan himself is dead. Do you think that death would change the promise that David and Jonathan made to each other? Not if we understand the relationship between Jonathan and David, not if we understand what it means in the biblical sense for this covenant to be cut, to exist, because even death does not erase it. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Reading on verse 2 through 5. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. You hear David's ears perk, perk up there, or see them. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of uh, Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Lodabar is located in the land of Gilead, not too far from Maenaim, which is figured prominently in the stories of Saul and his family. It literally means <clears throat> no pasture. So you, you could deduce from that that it's probably not the nicest place to live probably a bit of a desert area or perhaps a wilderness. And David knows what it's like to live on the run and hiding out in desert places, right? And Mephibosheth has been hiding out in Lodabar. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, he would have lived his life in fear from the day when he was five years old, which was a very fearful and fateful day. And fear had characterized his life since then because, uh, well, let me read a quote to you from uh, Dale Ralph Davis, who's a biblical commentator. He says, when in those days, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional po political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, and everybody practiced it. And you'll see biblical examples as you go on through the books of, of uh, uh, Kings and Chronicles where you have a new uh, king come to the throne and the first thing he does is eliminate all the family of his predecessor because they were a threat to the throne. And so uh, all, of, <laughs> all of Saul's family had been, had been decimated and, uh, and uh, killed off. Well, not all of them, right? Some of Saul's uh, grandchildren were still alive, and one of them here is named Mephibosheth. And uh, of course, you could say that it wasn't exactly a conventional practice for uh, Jonathan to take off his robe and his sword and his armor and give them to David and say, you will rule, and I will be second unto you. That wasn't a conventional thing to do either, was it? This relationship between uh, David and, and uh, Jonathan is going to be the profound uh, dynamic that changes uh, everything here in the story of Mephibosheth. 
Um, so, but you can imagine how Mephibosheth felt, right? You know, those, those guys that show up at your door and, and one day, you're in your 20s now, you've got a son, you've been lame in your feet since you were five, and it's a constant reminder, a constant reminder of the fear, and not just the fear, but the shame. Uh, commentators aren't, um, uh, there seems to be a little bit of ambiguity to this, but the, the name of Phibosheth is related to the Hebrew word for shame. So not just fear, but fear and shame and misery. Living in a desert place, there's this idea here that life has not been good for, for, uh, for him. And, uh, so, and now the knock comes to the door. Are you Mephibosheth? I am. The king wants to see you. What's going through your mind? <laughs> yeah. But David, uh, he, David has the, uh, the exact opposite in mind. Poor Mephibosheth. Like, I mean, all this fear and shame and, and misery uh, leading up to this is it. Okay, I'm a dead dog. That's what went through his mind because it tells us here in the text. Um, let me see. Uh, verse 9. Uh, uh, verse 6, sorry. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What, why, why would Mephibosheth, why would David say don't fear? There's only one reason, right? We don't have to speculate of whether or not Mephibosheth was afraid. It was, uh, it was very obvious. So David said, don't, don't fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. There's that, that phrase again, okay? And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And, and uh, the word father, by the way, is in Scripture, it can mean father, it can mean grandfather, it can mean great-grandfather, it can mean great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It can even mean sometimes mean uncle. It's, it has that idea. But um, anyways, that's, that's an aside. Um, where am I? Yeah, verse uh, 7. For um, I will restore to you all the land of your father, saw your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It says he came and fell on his face before David, casting himself almost, uh, it, would, it would appear, just basically casting himself on the mercy of David probably wasn't an unusual thing for Mephibosheth to fall down on his face. That probably happened a lot because he was lame in both of his feet. But this is something different. This is him falling down before David as an act of, of uh, uh, abandonment and, and uh, calling on, on David perhaps for, for mercy. And, and David says, don't, don't be afraid. Then um, verse 9, then the king called Ziba. Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. <clears throat> So David here goes uh, way beyond the terms of the agreement. You will recall that, uh, that the, 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 what he had agreed to was that he would spare the, the lives of Jonathan's descendants. And here he not only uh, spares Mephibosheth's life, he gives him back his dignity, he restores him, he guarantees his protection over him, and he gives him a place at the table. And this is very significant, a place at the king's table. Uh, four times, we're told, in these 13 verses that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Four times. When scripture repeats something, that makes it extra significant. But this is repeated, stated, and then repeated three more 
times. And then it says in verse um, 11, the uh, uh, last part there, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was uh, Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. So when we think about emphases, four times it says he ate at the king's table. The story of Mephibosheth begins here and ends here with this statement about him being lame in both of his feet. His feet were crippled somehow. And uh, now the writer wants us then to um, remember something that Mephibosheth and the people around him could never forget, that he was lame in both his feet. Because every time somebody looked at Mephibosheth, that was the most obvious thing about him. That was the thing that stood out. So it defined his life. He could not notice. And Mephibosheth could not notice. Because any time he ever tried to do anything, it was difficult. And so he, it was an, an, a constant a relentless reminder of the fear and the shame and, and the things that really defined uh, his, his life. Now, you might be inclined to think that, we might be inclined to think that, that uh, even David uh, and all that he did here for Mephibosheth couldn't change the fact that Mephibosheth was lame. And that was surely true. But I, I think that, that um, commentators are right to point out that this fact, and it, and it is significant and it's important, that when the king's sons were at the king's table, the king's children, were at the king's table, and Mephibosheth was there, and they were all pulled up to that table, seated at the king's table. Mephibosheth's lameness disappeared. His feet were covered, and he and his feet would not be seen. And when they were seated they would be uh, on equal footing. And I think that is significant. I think it's an incredible picture of what uh, family does. Because that is what family does, right? We all have our differences. We all have our limitations. But when we pull up to the table, uh, those differences disappear. And we belong, and we are equal, and we are a part, because we have a place. It might, those limitations may matter a lot when we're outside, but when we're at the table, the table of fellowship, we belong. We have a place. And it's determined by the head of the home, who is the king. Now, the account of Mephibosheth appears to be included here, along with chapters 8 and 10. So you have chapters 8, 9, and 10 as an example of how a king of grace and glory should behave. Uh, David was a sinner. He wasn't any kind of role model when it came to a lot of things. And as I mentioned earlier, that's going to be glaringly obvious 
in the, pa in the passages that follow, in the weeks that follow. Um, but there is, a, there is something else in this, this story, a Mephibosheth story, that's really important, and it's tied into this idea of covenant, and it's also... Um, it's also uh, has to do with a, a word. It's another key word that occurs three times in this passage. Um, it's often translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. But it's the Hebrew word chesed. And I'm not really good at <laughs> sounds. I would not make a good uh, Jew. But... Um, but it's a, an important word. Um, it's a word that's very difficult to translate into English because it has multiple uh, nuances to it. Um, as I mentioned, or I think I mentioned, it occurs 248 times in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. Um, let me just read a little bit from uh, some sources about this word, and you'll see why it's a really important word that ties into Mephibosheth's story. Um, Vine's expository uh, dictionary of the Old Testament says, in general, one may identify three basic meanings of chesed. Three meanings always interact. Strength, steadfastness, and love. Any understanding of said that fails to suggest all three inevitably loses some of its richness. He goes on to say that mutual, it's a mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship. Chesed implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. Uh, Vine's uh, dictionary goes on to say that biblical usage frequently speaks of someone doing, showing, or keeping chesed. So the concrete content of the word is especially evident when it's used in the plural. So you have the scripture speaking of God's mercies. That's the word in the plural. Or kindnesses. Or faithfulness. Is, which isn't even a word, but it is in Hebrew. Or acts of fidelity, if you will. So, so then we're talking here about a committed love that is also love in action. Let me point out um, one of the passages where this word figures prominently that we've already covered uh, back in the fall. That's Exodus 34. Remember when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by and you have this incredible statement uh, from coming from the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You, I hope, will remember this. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word. And faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love. That's the word again. For thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Fascinating how the scriptures talk here about uh, uh, God's, faithful, steadfast love, or his hesed, as the source for forgiveness, and at the same talking about, a, uh, the same, in the same breath, talking about those who will not be forgiven. You can put that together as you study the Bible for yourself. I hope you will, because God's forgiveness is not automatic. God doesn't just forgive people because he, he's a forgiving God. He is also a God of justice, and so justice must be served. God cannot stop being just to forgive. His justice has to be satisfied. And there's something in that that as we, as we continue to put the pieces of what, what this is all about together. Uh, but this idea here of, of uh, this, this term, um, again, quoting uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he says, Hesed is the devoted love promised within a covenant. 
Hesed is love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. So we could use a word like kindness or a word like love, but they just don't cut it, if you'll excuse the pun. They just don't cut it because it has to do with covenant. There is a fidelity to this. There is a steadfast to this. This isn't just love. This is unfailing love. This is a love that, that, that time doesn't affect, circumstances don't affect, even death doesn't affect it. Uh, Dear Ralph uh, Davis calls it, uh, says covenant and, covenant and chesed are uh, coleries. They go together. And... Uh, and in the passage that we're reading, it, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know about you. But it reminds me of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, love never fails. And he's talking, of course, about God's love. God's love never fails. But you will notice, if you're careful, that back in 1 Samuel, when Jonathan is, is uh, asking David to make this covenant commitment, as well here in as our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9, both of those passages, uh, there's reference to the chesed of God. Um, go back to 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. See, that's that word, chesed. The steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. That's that word again. Um, and Jonathan made a covenant, verse 16, with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You're talking not just talking about love like we use the word so often in our culture and in our society, and it means almost nothing. This is a word and a concept that's so deep that it's, it's, it rises to the point of being the love of God that never fails and can't fail because in order for the love of God to fail, God would have to fail himself. That's the kind of covenant love that, that God talks about in his word. And uh, as you go to uh, 2 Samuel, back to where we are, we're our main text, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And down in verse 3, And the king said, Is there not still someone to the house of Saul? He's talking to Ziva here. And that I may show the chesed of God to. And down in verse 7, And David said to him, that is Mephibosheth, Don't be afraid, for I will show you chesed. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. You may also recognize that in many of David's psalms, he sings about the steadfast love of the Lord. That's the same word. The psalms are David's very, the Psalms of David are his personal songs of worship and prayer to God, singing out of his personal experiences. And this experience of David that he had with Jonathan and the, the, the love that they had for one another and the commitment and the covenant that they formed together was so significant that it is the one thing that absolutely changed Mephibosheth's life and destiny. Think about that. David goes way beyond the technicalities of the promise. He didn't need to have Mephibosheth at his table. 
He restored to him all of, of, the, of the properties of his grandfather. He had all the servants he would ever need to live in the lap of luxury. He didn't need to eat at David's table, but David wanted Mephibosheth at his table. Why? Because of Jonathan. It had nothing to do with Mephibosheth himself per se, because David didn't even know Mephibosheth. And when he meets him, he meets him as a fearful, shameful, lame man. And he brings him into his house, the king's house, and he sets him at the king's table with all the children of the king. And he ate of the king's table for the rest of his life. Can you imagine David looking across the table and uh, seeing Jonathan? Because that's exactly what's going on here. You think they talked much about Jonathan? When you know the relationship that Jonathan had with David, you know they talked about Jonathan all the time. So what is this story all about and why is it here for us? It's about unfailing love and grace, right? But to understand that love and that grace, we must understand the context of the covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. I think it's a really important part of this story because this is all for Jonathan. The covenant, David never made the covenant with Mephibosheth. He made the covenant with Jonathan. It was Jonathan and David that had the covenant. The covenant was, it was with Jonathan. And David showed that steadfast love to Mephibosheth because of his unfailing love for Jonathan. Because Jonathan, or because Mephibosheth belonged to Jonathan. And David's attitude was, if you belong to Jonathan, you belong to me. And he gave him a place of belonging. There's a whole ton of stuff in here that, um, uh, you know, is, that floods, floods into the New Testament when it talks about the relationships that we have with one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you do not extend grace, forgiveness, and love to a, another a believer, you're breaking covenant with God. Now, just in case we are prone to miss or downplay the central centrality of the idea of covenant love here, uh, I want you to think, uh, I want you to consider another story in Scripture, and um, we won't read it, I'll just tell, I'll just tell you quickly about it. Because this is not the end we see of Mephibosheth, actually. He comes up again. And uh, he actually comes up two more times. And the second, the second time is um, kind of throws you for a little bit of a loop. But then as you read on, you, it, all, it all starts to make sense. But the last appearance that Mephibosheth makes in chapter 21 is really significant to the story here. And uh, it goes like this. It starts with these words. In, in 2 Samuel 21, it says there was a famine in the land. Now, we've heard that a lot, right? Those are common words. There's a famine in the land. But this famine in the, in the days of David, it says, and, and it went on for three years, three years of famine. It was getting bad. And so David goes to the Lord, and he says, you know, to the Lord, he inquires of the Lord, what's going on? And, and God immediately, in the text at least, tells David, this is what's going on. This famine is happening because Saul broke covenant with the Gibeonites. 
Now, if you've been following us along through the Bible, you have to go all the way back to Joshua chapter 9 to understand the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites when they dressed up and put the old clothes on and put the old moldy bread and, and came in. Remember that? Maybe. Anyways, no matter, Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites, and God said Saul broke that covenant and he massacred a bunch of Gibeonites. And God says to David, that's why this famine is here, because your king, Saul, representing the nation of Israel, broke covenant all the way back, we're talking hundreds of years, okay? Um, remember, uh, last week I said, remember uh, Adonai Bezek, Judges chapter 1? Well, remember the Gibeonites, Judges, uh, Joshua chapter 9, because God said to David, that's why this has all happened. Now, you can read it yourself, but that episode of, of famine and, and uh, broken covenant justice, if you will, in 2 Samuel chapter 21 doesn't end until David ends up handing over seven of Saul's grandsons to the Gibeonites who take them and execute them. And it's gory. I love what uh, uh, one commentator says. He says, readers should be aghast. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 21, it'll be one of those places where you go, oh man, this is, this is hard stuff. And, he, and this, and this uh, uh, again, this is Dale Ralph Davis again. He says, readers should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It's gory. Atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this for, for we easily fall into the trap of regarding atonement merely as a doctrine or a concept or an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed. And then he, he ends by saying, the stench of death hangs heavy where the wrath of God has been quenched. And the whole thing there is all about this idea of covenant. You can't break covenant. You make a promise, and you go back on that promise, like not just any promise, but we're talking a promise of the kind of magnitude that is worthy of chesed. Remember the cutting of the covenant. And, and there will be consequences for that. And that's the way God looks at this idea uh, of covenant. Now the reason I bring that into the story of Mephibosheth is because of what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7, it says, but the king, David, spared Mephibosheth. He gave seven grandsons to Saul to the Gibeonites, but he spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because... Because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The story of Mephibosheth is typically noted as a story of loving grace, and it is. But we have to understand grace that it does not occur apart from justice. The theme of justice. We, whether we're talking about the Gibeonites or whether we're talking about Adonai Bezek or whether we're talking about Saul or anybody else in Scripture, the theme of justice, it, it never breaks from that. People wonder, why, why the cross of Jesus? Why, you know, why all of that? Why doesn't God just forgive people? And the reason is because God never stops being just. Never. David had the power and the authority to execute Mephibosheth. Was it because of any merit of his own that Mephibosheth was spared and raised up? Technically speaking, Mephibosheth was David's enemy. He was a threat to the throne. He had what would be considered a legitimate claim to the throne. He had nothing that would merit David's kindness to him just like you and I have nothing to merit God's acceptance and kindness of us. And just like Mephibosheth, you and I are technically enemies of God. 
technically. I mean, when you sit here this morning and think about your life and you think about your, your, your sin and your failure, my sin and my failure before God, Scripture says technically we are, we are like Mephibosheth. So what do you, what do, you do, Mephibosheth? The only hope that I have before God is my relationship with the one he loves, the one he's made a covenant with. Who is that? Well, there's only one. Jesus Christ secured the love of the Father on our behalf. He was faithful unto death. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That the name that be by the, before the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, everyone will prostrate themselves. Jesus sat at the table that night with the disciples and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And sometimes people have this idea and I guess it's how we want things to be, that God's just somehow going to forgive us. Because that's just the kind of God he is. Well, he is a forgiving God. But he's also a God of justice. So how's he going to pull that off? We need to understand grace and love in the context of justice and God's has said. Um, just, a, just another passage. We'll throw one more passage up. Have a look at this. This is New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at these verses now and think about Mephibosheth as you read these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before you were even born, before you even breathed, God had already entered into covenant with his son. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has, uh, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The most common descriptor of a Christian in the New Testament is those two words, in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? More than any other time in the New Testament, the answer to that is to be a Christian means to be in Christ. That means when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. Because if he sees you and I and all of our failures and all of our limitations and our inadequacies and our sin and our fear and our shame, it ain't going good. But that's not what he sees when you're in Christ. And that's why to be a Christian is to be in Christ because if we're not in Christ, what do we have? What do we have to stand before God? What is it that's going to make a difference on that day? You know, the, the um, parable that, that Jesus told about the banquet that God's preparing, are uh, you familiar with that? Let, let me read it and I'll close with this, okay? When one of those who were reclined at the table with him, that's Jesus, with him being Jesus, heard these things that Jesus was saying, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for every one thing is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and, and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I do not, uh, I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. 
she won't let me. So, verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. When David sent for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth came in and he threw himself down before David and said, I'm a dead dog. But David loved him with, for Jonathan's sake with an everlasting love. And he raised him up and he sat him forever at his own table with his children. What a picture. I have a question for all of us here today, for all of you, for each of you. Have you responded to the invitation that Jesus Christ gives? He said, come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. But you know what else he said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can be rightly related to Jesus. And please believe me when I say this. When the day comes, that will be the only thing that will matter. The only thing. When you read those words, for Jonathan's sake, the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that becomes... For Jesus' sake. Why would God allow you or I to sit at his table? Please understand, there is only one reason. And he is Jesus. And if you know him, if you can honestly say that you have responded to his invitation and that you belong to him, that's the thing and the only thing that will make a difference that day. So I just close with the question. Have you personally responded by faith to the invitation of Jesus Christ? He said, whoever comes to me, I will not turn one away. And then he went and laid down his life and satisfied the righteous, holy justice of God for you and for me. Do you know him? On that day, when it is the only thing that matters, will he know you? Do you belong to him? Let's stand and pray. As we pray together today and head off into the rest of the day, what we've been talking about this morning is the most important issue of your life. It's the most important issue today, and it will be the most important issue when you take your last breath. And it will remain the most important issue for all eternity. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Does he know you? Do you belong to him? Because without him, you have no hope. So let's pray, and let's all examine our hearts, and if you're here today and you can't say that for sure, then I would invite you in the name of Jesus, the one who said, come to me, I will not turn one away. It's really quite simple in the sense that you're trusting in him to do what you could never do. You're just a lame beggar. Same as me, before God. What if he were to look at you and see his son? That changes everything. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that even right now that you would be doing what you said you would do when you said you would send your spirit into this world, that you, that the spirit of God would convict the world of sin and that the spirit of God would show 
us, sinners, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give people eyes of faith here today, that we would understand the, um, the great and amazing love of God, the steadfast, unfailing love of God, that you entered into covenant with your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be saved. I pray, Father, that you would be speaking to hearts, and I pray that right now that there will be men and women in this room who would say yes to Jesus Christ, even in the quietness of their hearts right now. If you would say, yes, Lord Jesus, please take me. I accept your invitation to come to you. I come to you by faith. I come to you by faith right now in all my sin and all my need. I have nothing in my hands to bring to merit anything but I come in the name of Jesus, your son. And I ask, Lord, that you would take me and make me your own. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me your child. And I ask these things in faith, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.